can have a seat. If you're with us for the first time, we're so thankful for th- that you're here. Uh, and I do want to say happy Father's Day uh, to all the dads in the room. Um, yeah, most praise the Lord. But one of the things that I, I know to be true about Father's Day is that it can be uh, mixed with all sorts of emotions uh, all over the place. Um, mixed with happiness, thankfulness, grief. And, and I, our word today, I think, is very timely uh, for this because it points us to our Heavenly Father. Uh, but it also tells us to abide and to remain. That's the word for today. We're in John 15, uh, and the word is to abide and to remain. These are the words that Jesus gave to his disciples right before his death. You know, all summer long, and we're looking at this uh, one long teaching in the upper room during the Last Supper with Jesus teaching the disciples. And just as a refresher, you know, five days prior to this, uh, Jesus uh, came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey with everyone shouting, um, Hosanna, King of the Jews. And then Jesus gave his last public teaching telling them that he's going to die and the disciples that are following him, they know that others are trying to arrest him. And so here are the disciples at dinner with Jesus and he's already shocked them by washing their feet. Um, he said one of them will betray him and Peter uh, will deny him and he's going to leave them. They can't come to him right now. And then as we saw last week, Jesus told them that he will send them another helper. And that he will not leave them as orphans. And he told them about the Holy Spirit that will come after he leaves. And in all of this, and all of what he's been teaching them, one thing is certain. The disciples are fearful. They're troubled. Over and over again throughout this teaching, Jesus has said and will continue to say, let not your hearts be troubled. Do not, be, do not fear. Don't be afraid. Peace I give to you. Church, the audience that Jesus is speaking to, they are troubled and anxious. They are, uh, the disciples are worried. They're fearful. And in their fear and worry, Jesus teaches them about the helper of the Holy Spirit who will be with them uh, that we looked at last week. And then immediately following that, he gives them our text for today. So let's go ahead and read John 15, 1 through 11. This is what it says. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing." If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciple. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. New City, uh, this is a great text. Uh, and the context of which this is taught, I think, really makes this come alive. You know, I've often heard this uh, passage taught with the fruit of ministry in mind, thinking of evangelism and missions and discipling other people. And I think in some ways it can relate to that, but I hope to show you that in, uh, it is way more than that. Because again, the disciples, they're troubled, they're worried, they're fearful, and in their worry and fear, Jesus says to them, he looks at them and says, abide in me. You know, that word abide, it can also be translated remain. You know, remain in me, we're going to use that interchangeably today. 
Um, But with that said, I noticed this past week how verse 11, the last verse that we read today, how important it is. Look at it again. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So this entire teaching on abiding and remaining in Jesus, Jesus taught it for the purpose of joy. That's what Jesus said in verse 11, which makes our main idea really uh, simple today. And it's this, full joy comes through abiding in Jesus. You know, there are many uh, fruits that Jesus refers to that come through abiding, and we'll talk about those. But in verse 11, Jesus emphasizes the fruit of joy, specifically to troubled souls. And so again, the disciples are full of fear and worry. Their hearts are troubled. They're not at rest. And Jesus says, abide in me, remain in me, so that, in verse 11, their joy may be full. And and church, this is so incredibly helpful for us. Because I I don't know about you, but it's really easy for my heart to be troubled. Like almost by everything, it seems like. Like every day we wake up, it seems like there's something to be troubled about, something at work, uh, something, uh, the fact that we actually have to go to work, something with our kids or with parenting, something with the economy, something with relationships and family, with our finances, our house, car repairs, our health, our future. I mean, maybe we're uh, troubled by unmet goals and ambitions or with mistakes we've made. I mean, we could go on and on. I mean, we're just a troubled bunch of people. I mean, we're easily fearful and maybe even grumpy. And then we hear Bible verses like 1 Thessalonians 5.16 that tell us to rejoice always. And then Paul says the same thing in Philippians 4.4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. I don't know about you, uh, but sometimes I just don't feel like rejoicing. And this whole joy thing, uh, let's be honest here, it's way easier said than done. And then we think about where Paul was when he said those words about rejoicing in the Lord always. Y'all, he was in jail. He was suffering, waiting for his death. And Paul said rejoice always to the Thessalonian church. They were a bunch of new Christians, and Paul was preparing them for more extreme hardship and persecution. So here Jesus is sitting with his disciples in John 15 at this dinner, and he's telling them how in their trouble they can find joy, full joy. Let me remind us that many of the disciples were later persecuted and killed for their faith. And so Jesus here prepares these disciples for the key to full joy after he leaves. No, he doesn't promise better circumstances. He doesn't promise that life will go the way that they want. He doesn't promise a constant emotional elation of excitement about the state of our life. No, Jesus gives troubled and weary hearts a path to joy in the middle of our trouble. And so all that said, you know, I love our text today for several reasons. You know, one, uh, it's because it's just so honest. And it just reminds us of the reality of life. Like, life is hard. But two, uh, another, just I guess more non-spiritual reason I like this text is because it talks about plants, okay? Call me weird, but I've always just been so fascinated by plants. I just found them really interesting Um, There's something special about planting a seed or planting a plant and just slowly and methodically watching it grow over time. It makes me feel like I'm doing something really productive, like you can actually visibly see the progress when a plant is growing. Uh, But then there's also something special about uh, eating the fruits uh, and vegetables, like just kind of taking the fruit of your own harvest and eating it. I know our last house... um, You know, one of the things I was most excited about when we moved into this house several years back was that there were several grapevines that grew up this wooden lattice 
uh, and a trellis around our back deck. And it created privacy kind of with the greenery uh, around the deck, you know, about half the year. And then the other half, well, it was just a bare trellis and there was no privacy. Uh, But at the same time, every year in the fall, our deck, it would just be covered in grapes. And we would eat grapes right off the vine. Some were good, some were not so good. But through the years, you know, I just kind of learned how to care for grapevines. You know, when grapes would grow, you would need to pick off these little small shoots that would come up. You just kind of pluck them off. Um, you know, those little small shoots, they were trying to grow. They were t- actually taking the nutrients from the other grapes. And so you're tr- you had to just pick them off. And so uh, more of the nutrients could get to the larger grapes so that they would taste better. And so if you just let all of them grow and you didn't pick off those small shoots, the, the, the grapes, uh, they didn't taste so great. They would just be sour. And so we often had a lot of sour grapes at our house. And during the, uh, the winter, all the leaves would fall off, and I had to prune back the vines. I had to kind of cut them back so they, they could grow again the following year so they would produce more grapes. And every year I would cut them back, and every year the base of the vine, it would grow thicker and thicker. And the next year, uh, the thicker vines would grow larger branches with more fruit. But every year those bigger vines, I had to also cut off way more of the branches because of how big they got. Where the smaller vines, they just kind of stayed small. Some of them didn't make it, they ended up dying, uh, were just kind of stunted, or they never really grew much. I didn't have to prune them much, but they also didn't produce many grapes. You know, when we started at our house, we had a total of 10 plants. Uh, but after the five years of being there, there were only about seven plants. Three of, about three of them died. Uh, but really, there's only about three plants that really produced, uh, that really covered most of the trellis. And I bring all of this up because this is the illustration that Jesus gives us today in our passage. These disciples at this dinner, they would have been very familiar with grapevines and the care that went into them. And the vine, it was actually a a major national symbol that was mentioned frequently in the Old Testament and throughout the book of John. Jesus, he had seven I am statements telling us who he is. He said things like, I am the bread of life. I am the, uh, the, wor- the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He had seven of them, and today's our last one. He says, I am the true vine. Look again at verse one. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And so Jesus is illustrating who he is and how he interacts with us by using this picture of a fruit vine. And again, the reason Jesus is telling us this, as we saw at the end of this teaching in verse 11, he does it for the purpose of full joy. Which tells us that the path to full joy is through Jesus, the true vine. And so this shouldn't be a surprise to us. Jesus has been saying this in different ways throughout the entire book of John, that Jesus is uh, our, our source of life. But I want to point out here, Uh, For our first point, more specifically, is that if Jesus is the true vine, that means there must also be false vines, which leads us to our first point. Number one, false vines don't produce full joy. So we've got three points today, and the first two are on the harder side of this abiding and remaining, looking at false vines and pruning, where the third point is more focused on abiding. Uh, We'll have several sub-points there, but Uh, In this first verse, I want to point out that Jesus goes out of his way to show us that he is not just one of many vines, but know that he is the true vine. And for Jesus to say that he is the true vine shows us that he knows that there are also many false vines that will try to give full joy, but will not. So Jesus knows both us and the disciples will be tempted to try to find the fruit of joy from these other false vines, and so he tells them that he is the true vine. 
This is like a basic foundational principle um, in the Christian life. That Jesus, like I said, is our only source of joy. While also knowing that this is likely one of the most easily forgotten truths. That we just need to be reminded of over and over, like several times a day. Because our hearts are so easily lured to things that we think will give us life and joy, but they will not. I mean, we can make a really long list of things that we're tempted to go to that are false funds. They, they, they kind of give the mirage of full life, like our careers and money and comforts in the, easy, in the easy life. Like relationships, pleasures, substances, food. I mean, we could go on and on. And you probably know some in your own life that you may often go to. Like we all have them, multiple of them. And very likely multiple different ones in multiple different areas of our life. Like I have my false vines at work that I think will give me life, but they fall short. I also have like a whole different set of false vines as a husband and as a dad. An entirely different set with all my hobbies and friendships and interests. And Jesus is reminding us today that he is the only true vine that will produce the fruit of true and lasting joy, no matter the circumstance or event. Yes, God gives us many good things to enjoy that are good gifts for us, but we need to remember God gave them to be enjoyed, but not to be our source of joy. Because there are many good things in our life, but when life gets hard and it seems like there is nothing to enjoy, we're still attached to the vine. We still have our source of joy. And so how are these disciples going to endure their persecutions and hardships and trials that are coming and rejoice with full joy in the middle of them? I'm going to tell you how they're not going to do it. <laughs> they won't do it by going to these false finds. And so let's ask ourselves, like, what false finds are we each tempted to go to? What false vines are we trying to get the fruit of joy that just isn't working, that keeps disappointing us? What false vines are troubling our hearts and souls and are leading us to fear and worry? And Jesus tells us through his word today that he is the true vine. So again, let's ask, are we drawing life from the right vine? And you know what I know? I've got a pretty good hunch that many of us, including myself, know that Jesus is the true vine, but yet these other false vines, they easily pop up in our life. Which is why I'm so thankful for the second half of verse 1. Showing us that God the Father is the vine dresser and not myself. Again, happy Father's Day. God is our perfectly wise Father that directs us. You know, I tell my kids all the time as their dad, my job is to point them to their heavenly father. Like, I do my best to represent God, uh, God the Father to them, but I fall short and try really hard to point out to them where I fall short and how Jesus then stands in the gap. Like, dads, we're not the vine dresser for our kids. That's God. We're simply stewards that point our kids to God the Father. Church, God is the vine dresser in our life, and God the Father cares for the vine and helps get rid of those other false vines in our life. So God sees these false vines in our life, and as a loving vine dresser, he works to get rid of them, kind of like weeds in a garden. And again, if we're attached to Jesus the vine, it comes with a loving and wise vine dresser in God the Father. We have a loving and wise Father. But let's keep moving here. Look again at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So I want to be sure, uh, make sure we're clear that Jesus is not talking about false vines here. No, he moves from the vine to the branches of the vine. 
And Jesus says later in verse 5 that Jesus is the vine and that the disciples, his followers, they're the branches. And then he says the branches that do not bear fruit, he takes away. Showing us, again, we can't follow Jesus and not have the fruit of Jesus. We saw this last week. Those who are in Christ obey Christ. They're one and the same. If we're following Jesus, if we are in the true vine, the fruit of the vine, it will come out of us. But then get this. We also saw in verse 2 that those who do bear fruit, he prunes. <laughs> like, this is really hard, and this is not fun. Like, the loving vine dresser brings the knife to those connected to the vine. He brings the knife to those who are bearing fruit, leading us to our second point. Number two, full joy in Jesus comes with pruning. Like This is the part that we don't like, or at least I don't like it. You know, I've never uh, had a, a plant talk to me, but if I could talk to a vine, I would imagine that it may tell me that being pruned with a knife, it would not be much fun. And the reason I know that it probably would not like it is because when you prune a plant it goes through a period of stress yes plants get stressed too and you see the effects of their stress and their leaves start to wilt and turn colors and they need more water and some sort of fertilizer because when you cut off their limbs they need to heal and that healing it takes more energy making them go through a period of stress and I think if those poor little plants could talk they would say no please don't prune me this is not fun. I like those branches. I love those leaves. Look at the, the long, beautiful limbs. Please don't take them away from me. Like, it's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. And those little shoots, oh, they're so, they're so cute popping up. Like, they're so innocent. Can't we just keep them? But yet the vine dresser knows when you prune the plants, they grow bigger and stronger and produce more fruit. And when you pluck off those little shoots, they don't steal the nutrients that make the other fruits sweeter. And so what does that loving vine dresser do? He prunes the plants. He gets rid of the limbs and cuts back all those beautiful leaves and plucks those little shoots off that come up for the purpose of bearing more fruit. And those little talking plants, after they're pruned and healed and the stress is over, they see more fruit and the fruit is sweeter. Their joy increases and their joy is greater. Like Christian, were those little talking plants? God prunes us because he loves us are these pruning seasons fun no not at all they are so stressful they hurt because we often have to say goodbye to the things that we love some of the things we love they may be good for us but yet not best for us and some of those things we love we think are good but God knows they're not and so he prunes us church this is the loving scalpel of God God takes things out of our life in order to give us something better to make the fruit sweeter. And those things are hard and not fun, and they're often stressful and cause us to worry and maybe fear, but yet God tells us to take heart and to not let our hearts be troubled. Church, our vine dresser and God the Father, he is good and wise. He knows what's best, and so he prunes us. And you know what's hard about this? The pruning, it never stops like the more fruit we produce, the more he prunes. Like more maturity means more pruning. But it also means more fruit. It means sweeter fruit. Like if, if God is pruning you, take heart, Christian. 
Like, I don't know how God is pruning you now, but maybe, like, maybe there's a financial stress or a relational stress, or maybe you're in a season of waiting, or maybe work or family dynamics are hard and not fun, or maybe God is revealing sin in your life through this pruning process, but in some way, God is pruning you and preparing you in a way you may not see right now, but he will produce more fruit later. And before the next joyful harvest comes, the pruning must first take place. This is just how life works. Church, the Bible is very, very clear and honest about the reality of life. The Bible is just really honest with us. The Bible never says life will be easy and then the joyful harvest will come. No pruning and tilling and toil comes before the abundant harvest. We often don't like it and it's not fun. But this is the way of the kingdom and the way to sweeter and more fruit. Well, yet in that pruning season, Jesus reminds us to come to him. He says, abide in me. Because you know when the vine dresser's hand is the closest to the branch? It's when he's pruning it. Church, there is a sweet dependency on the Lord that is only found and realized when he prunes us. The loving helper and counselor and protector and the healer of the Holy Spirit, those are realized and more fully known in our seasons of pruning is God pruning you take heart hold fast to Jesus and remember that the vine dresser is good and loving and wise and knows what's best for us let's look at verse six the next six verses verses three to eight sorry Jesus says already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you abide in me and I in you As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. There is a lot here, but the central theme is abiding. It's remaining in Jesus. It's a call for us to stay connected to the vine, to draw nutrients from the true vine of Jesus and not those other false vines. In verse three, I just want to point out here that Jesus reminds them that they are already clean, um, which seems to be a little bit of an interesting tangent here but Jesus is referring back to John 13 when Jesus washed their feet while also telling them that they will uh, he will wash them spiritually clean and I'm so thankful that verse 3 is here because it forces us to be reminded of the tension of being already 100% spiritually clean by the washing of the blood of Jesus that occurs for all those who put their faith in Jesus as Jesus is referring to here being totally clean because of the gospel By believing in Jesus and his finished work at the cross, Jesus reminds us here that we're already clean because of our faith in Jesus, while yet, at the same time, Jesus is reminding us that we are still in our human flesh and we still each have sin. And while we're on this earth, God wants to make us more like himself, and so he he prunes us to get rid of our sin, showing us that as we grow in Christ, we should be sinning less and less, hopefully, by the grace of God. And the pruning process is one of the ways in which God helps us to do that. And the way God grows us to become more like him is through abiding and remaining in Jesus, is through staying closely connected to Jesus. And then in verse 4, Jesus says the branch, which is 
us. Jesus says we can't bear fruit by ourselves. We can only bear the fruit of Jesus if we're connected to Jesus. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen a vine branch just kind of detached from the vine, just sitting there on the ground on its own. But one thing is for sure. That detached vine, it will not bear fruit. Like it will shrivel up and it will dry out on the ground. And Jesus says in verse 5, he says, apart from him, we can do nothing. Like those detached vines, they can't do what they were created to do, to bear fruit. And then in verse 6, he says, if we don't abide in Jesus, we'll wither, we'll be thrown out like a branch, thrown into a pile and burn. And then in verse 7, he said, but if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Then in verse 8, it says, by all of this, we will bear much fruit and God will be glorified showing us that abiding in Jesus, with abiding in Jesus comes blessing, while at the same time seeing the contrast that those who do not abide in Jesus comes cursing. Those who don't abide in Jesus, Jesus said, can do nothing and will wither and burn, which I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound so great. Like, it kind of sounds like a curse to me. Where on the other side, those who do abide in Jesus, they bear much fruit. They have prayers answers, Jesus says, and they glorify God which sounds pretty good. And so abiding in Jesus results in much fruit, and not abiding in Jesus doesn't seem to end well, which leads us to number three. Abiding in Jesus leads to full joy. And yes, this is basically our main point. Because as we saw Jesus say at the end of this, in verse 11, he said, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that our joy may be full. And so we know that when we abide in Jesus, Jesus' joy is in us, and because of that, we're led to a fullness of joy. Not, not because it's our joy based off of our life and our strength, but rather because it's Jesus' joy in us. And so we need to ask, what does it mean to abide in Jesus? Because again, when we abide in Jesus, the fruit of Jesus comes out, which includes joy. And we've also seen that Jesus answered prayers. And when we abide in Jesus, God is glorified in our abiding. And so abiding in Jesus, this is a big deal. But what is it? How do we do it? What does it look like? And so based out of our text, uh, I want to show us four ways in which we abide in Jesus. And each of them are important. Hopefully this will be really practical. And I'm not saying this is like a guaranteed four-step process to joy. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying if we're connected to the true vine of Jesus, if Jesus is our source of joy and not other false vines, and we're, and we're doing these four things based off of the word of God, we're at least on the right path to joy. Because these four things, they happen when we abide. And so if these things are not happening, there's no way we can draw from the nutrients of the vine of Jesus. So let's look back at verse 7 to see our first two. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So based off of this verse, we can see the first two things that must be included in our abiding. Uh, Remain in the word and remain in prayer. Those are the first two. Jesus pairs abiding in Jesus with God's word, the scriptures. And so let's ask ourselves, are we staying in the Word? Are we engaging in the Bible? Are we reading it? Are we studying it? Are we meditating on it? Are we memorizing it? Are we teaching it? Are we regularly and routinely sitting under the teaching and preaching of it? We've been saying this all year as a church. But studies have shown that the single greatest spiritual discipline that is the greatest indicator of our spiritual health is our Bible engagement. Not just studying the Bible for information, but for transformation. Church, if the only time we're engaging with the Word is here on a Sunday morning, our spiritual health will likely suffer. 
So if abiding in Jesus leads to full joy, and one of the ways in which we abide in Jesus is by engaging the Word, we could probably get a good idea of how spiritually healthy and vibrant we are and how much of Jesus' joy we have just simply based on our Bible engagement. Like if you, come to, if you came to me and said, Pastor, I'm really struggling. I'm in a dry season. I really lack joy in my life. One of the very first questions I would ask you is tell me about your time in the Word. Like are you making time for it? Are you not just reading the Bible, but also letting the Bible read you in your life? Are we yielding to it and submitting to it? You know, something we've been saying a lot this year is just praying for a slow and unhurried time in the Word. Church, are we slowing down and chewing on the Word? Just kind of like a, a dog chews on a bone. Like just delighting in it and enjoying it and praying it and journaling it and memorizing it and meditating on it and thinking about it throughout our day. Are we allowing it to change us? Again, we, imbi- we abide in Jesus by abiding in his word. So if we don't have this daily discipline of Bible engagement, I'm just pleading with you to make this a new discipline in your life. If you do anything new this summer, do that. Like engage with the word. Make it a daily habit and it will change you. But then also in verse 7, the second way in which we abide is through prayer. Church, are we spending time in prayer? Are we talking with the Lord? Verse 7 assumes that we know Jesus and are communicating with him. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. We saw Jesus say the same thing back in chapter 14. Like, what a promise. We explained some of that back in a couple weeks ago. But here he brings it up with abiding, saying abiding is the key to, answer, like, to prayer, to answered prayer. And Jesus tells us that abiding in Jesus looks like communicating with him, asking with him, pleading with him praying to him, which leads us to see that another good indicator of our our abiding, it's our prayer life. Now, I've I've recently read a book called Just Ask uh, by Pastor J.D. Greer, and one of the points he points out that is the most self-proclaimed Christians overall, we're just pretty prayerless. Like, we know we should pray, we desire to pray, but yet we often don't pray. In fact, he points out in the book that uh, he kind of, he gets at the heart Uh, and shows that most seemingly mature Christians would likely be embarrassed if someone actually knew how much time we prayed. And this is not to heap on guilt and condemnation on us, but it just shines a light on our abiding. And our prayerlessness, he says, is typically not a discipline problem, but a desperation problem. Like we think we're okay, uh, just kind of on our own. But what Jesus shows us here is that the abiding Christian, it's a praying Christian, is staying so closely connected to Christ, pleading for the nutrients that come from Christ. There is an abiding, there's no abiding if we aren't praying and asking and receiving from God. And so again, what does an abiding Christian look like? They look like someone who regularly engages with the word and and prays with God. But you know what I also know? It's not just that. Because I know good and well that simply reading the Bible and praying, it doesn't mean that we're going to be full of joy in Jesus. Because believe me, I know that it is really easy to make these checklist items and just kind of do them begrudgingly and without joy. Which is why I think these next two things are so essential in our abiding. Let's look at verses 9 and 10 to see what else Jesus says. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus tells us here to abide in his love. 
And that if we keep his commandments, meaning if we obey him, we will abide in his love, which leads us to um, our last two subpoints here. Remain in obedience and remain in Jesus' love. In verse 10, Jesus connects our obedience to him as a part of our abiding. If we obey, it leads us to abide. While at the same time, our abiding leads us to obey. They're all kind of connected. It's like two points in a circle. They really just kind of fuel each other. When we obey, it leads us to abide. And when we abide, it leads us to obey. And so if we want to grow in our abiding, we must grow in our obeying. We don't just read the word and pray, but we also obey the word and obey the leading of the Spirit. Now, I just want to point out that this is where Christianity can get kind of sideways. Because I know in me saying this, it's like, see, Christianity, it is all about following rules. And to that, we have to say, no, not at all. The order is important. Christianity is about Jesus. It's about being connected to the vine first. And the result of this is obedience. We have to hold these things in tension. We're commanded to obey while also obedience is the outworking of the Spirit working in our life. The fact that we're even considering obedience and forced to wrestle with, the, with our flesh to obey, that is evidence of the Spirit working in our life. Jesus here is speaking to his disciples and saying, when you obey, you will grow in loving me. Which shows us they already love Jesus and are already following him, but Jesus is showing them and us that the more we obey, the more our love for Jesus grows. The more we obey, the more we abide. I find this so interesting because of how true this is of our human nature. Because just, just follow me here for a second. Why is it that obedience is so hard? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of the reasons is because our flesh and our desires, they often speak really loud. And in those moments when we're having to deny our own preferences and desires and obey, even when we don't want to, even in those moments we're telling ourselves that Jesus is better, that Jesus is the ruler of our life. And we say that following Jesus is better, it, our, it grows our affections for Jesus. Because what Jesus is teaching us here is that our obeying, it cultivates our abiding. Again, the more that we obey Jesus, the more we will grow in our love for Jesus. Jesus is teaching us here, honestly, the same thing that we see in secular psychology. Secular psychology falls short in many other ways. But when we cultivate these new disciplines and new habits, we begin to develop new desires. In the book Atomic Habits, the author points out that generally speaking, the outcome of our life is based on the habits we build and not necessarily the goals we set. Meaning the small choices we make every day say more about who we are becoming than the desired end goal. And this is basically the same thing Jesus is saying, except he adds more, like grace and love. Because when we make the choice to obey Jesus, we're making the choice for Jesus to be our desire. Jesus shows us the same principle in Matthew 6, 21. It's called the treasure principle. Jesus says, where our treasure is, their heart will be also. Meaning our heart follows our actions. Like our hearts follow our investments and our resources of time and money and effort and obedience. Again, our heart follows what we do. What we read and watch and listen and where we go and what we engage in, that's where our heart will be. And Jesus is saying, if your life is consumed with obeying the commands of Jesus, our hearts 
and our affections, for, our heart and our affections for Jesus, they will also grow. Like our abiding in Jesus will grow deeper. And again, I want to make this really clear today. Just like I said last week, this is so important. Our obedience to Jesus does not make Jesus love us anymore. No, our obedience to Jesus, it affects our love for him, not his love for us. Because we know in the gospel that Jesus cannot love us any more or love us any less. No, the cross fully displayed his love for us, that while we were still centered, Christ died for us. So yes, we abide in Jesus by remaining in the word, remaining in prayer, and by obeying him. But with all of this, we must remember that Jesus calls us to remain in his love. Like, this is the difference maker. Because listen, the Pharisees, they remained in the word. They remained in prayer. They were disciplined to obey, but yet they rejected the love of Jesus. Remaining in the love of Jesus and sitting in this love, it keeps us from a begrudging checklist and cold-hearted legalism. Like the Pharisees, they were professional box checkers, <laughs> but yet they rejected the love of Jesus. Church, love moves us to the word. It moves us to pray. It moves us to obey. While at the same time, those other things, they also move us to a greater love. They're all connected. Y'all listen, abiding in Jesus without remembering and staying in the love of Jesus, it won't do us any good. It will only condemn us and make us realize all the ways we fall short. But when we remain in the love of Jesus while also remaining in the word and praying and seeking to obey God, we'll be lavished with the grace and mercy and kindness of God. And when we remember his grace and mercy and love, when we abide in the love of Jesus, we know we can freely come to Jesus day in and day out, no matter our sin, no matter our mistakes. Y'all, when I open my Bible every morning, I write down in my journal just three simple things. God, give me your heart. God, give me your mind. And God, make my actions an extension of you. I read a psalm. I write it down, write down parts of it, pray over it, kind of chew on it, and write down a few prayers out of that. That's just what I do. But can I tell you how discouraging it would be if I came to Jesus and wrote those three simple prayers apart from knowing the love of Jesus that forgives me? I mean, because literally every day, every single day, I write that down and pray over it, and every single day, I fall short of those three simple prayers. Like literally every day. In some way, I do not reflect the heart of God. In some way, I do not mimic the mind of God. In some way, my actions do not mimic God's actions. But yet, because I can come and sit and remain in the love of Jesus that is filled with forgiveness and grace and mercy, I can be filled with a new hope. We can be filled with new hope for the day rather than being overwhelmed with condemnation. Because when we abide and remain in the love of Jesus, you know what we remain in? The cross, the gospel. We remain in his forgiving grace. The love of Jesus was perfectly portrayed at the cross, and we never move past the cross. We never get past God's grace. Abiding in Jesus' the love of Jesus, it never moves past God's never-ending grace. Christian, Jesus tells us today to abide in his love, to sit in it, to stay in it, to remain in it. You know, we are loved by God more than we could ever imagine. And every single time we fall short, God Jesus does not shun us away. No, he opens up his arms and says, come and just sit with me. Be with me. Abide in me. Church, this is the love of Jesus. Abide in his love. Remain in it. And the full joy of Jesus will flood out of our hearts. So how do we abide in Jesus? We get into the word. 
And let it get into us. We fall on our knees in prayer. Seek to obey his commandments and we regularly and re- remember and reflect on the love of Jesus. We just simply sit in his amazing grace. Which leads us right back to verse 11. Let's read it again. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. New City, Jesus said all of these things to comfort us, to give us hope and lead us to full joy in the hardships of life. And how do we find full joy? We abide in Jesus. We stay connected to the vine of Jesus. We don't let those false vines uh, come in. We let the vine dresser lovingly prune us and we abide. May we take heart today, church, knowing that Jesus is with us and for us and that he has full life to give us. Oh, you're so dearly loved today. Let's pray. God, we need you. God, we need to abide in you. But yet, God, we often, we, have, we fall short in so many ways. But yet the love of Jesus and the grace of Jesus continues to reach out and hold on to us and pursue us and, and give us the nutrients that are connected to Christ, God. God, we go through these seasons of pruning that are hard, but yet when we're connected to the vine, you bear much fruit in us. God, we love you and we need you and we ask this all in Jesus.